With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hooker Show, a presentation of Off the Hook Sports. Objective insight, expertise, top guest. Available on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and the Off the Hook Sports app. Download now for free. Also available on OffTheHookSports.com. I compute and obey. Now to Dave Hooker. Ready. Here we go. I'm not sure which day it is. I'm not sure I will all week because holiday weekends really mess me up. Hope you had a fantastic one. Again, as I said on Friday, Memorial Day is not just Veterans Day. It's not just Armed Forces Day. It's about those that gave the ultimate sacrifice. So God bless to those families. And uh, thank you so much for what you did, for what we're able to enjoy on a daily basis. And, uh, Wow, what a weekend uh, for me, Caleb uh, Calhoun. As you know, some of the uh, the backstory there. Uh, lost a close loved one, uh, pet. Um, and I know you have a puppy and you're a dog person, so that was tough. But uh, at the same time, we persevere and we move on. How are you, Caleb Calhoun? I am good, Dave. I am sorry to hear about your dog, but you know it's that's got to be rough. I. Haven't I haven't had to I haven't personally had to put down a dog even though I've lived with dogs my whole life that's usually been my other family members so I I yeah. can imagine what that's like wasn't wasn't great but uh, we we move on Tennessee with a big big football weekend so we want to break that down and if you haven't had a chance to check out what Caleb Drew's been doing on off the hook sports dot com he was uh, putting it in over the weekend time wise so he's I've been up and rolling all weekend while uh, I had some questionable cell service so 
we certainly appreciate Caleb for all he's doing and covering recruiting and really knocking it out of the park. So let's go ahead and get rolling with that. Let's get started as Tennessee with a monstrous recruiting weekend. It is time for four downs. Four downs brought brought to you by Campbell Cunningham. Taylor and Han with Caleb Giroux. I'm Dave Hooker. Four downs now. Brought to you by Campbell Cunningham, Taylor and Han. I don't have glasses or contacts. Here we go. Four downs. Four questions. Four answers. The Dave Hooker Show. Four. Four. Four downs. A presentation of OffTheHookSports.com. All right, first down as we look back on the recruiting weekend. If you have any questions, throw them at me at the message board. First down, how big is Peyton Lewis? The commitment that if you listen to offthehooksports.com, if you follow us on the Twitter and on our website, pretty much had a good idea that Peyton Lewis was going to end up at Tennessee. So not a surprise commitment. But how big is this commitment? Peyton Lewis, what do you make of Peyton Lewis? By the way, a big show, ESPN's Adam Rittenberg will join us a little bit later in the program. So what do you make of Peyton Lewis, the pickup there, Caleb Calhoun? Dave, quite honestly, I think it's a bigger commitment than it looks on paper. On paper, Peyton Lewis is a fringe four-star. Four-star on 247, three-star on rivals, kind of vacillates between. But... I'm going to do what recruiting services get lambasted for doing all the time, but you know they do, and I can't blame them, which is I'm going to evaluate players, a player like him, based on who is pursuing him. And when you talk about the fact that – I think they should take that into account. No, I I hope that they would take that into account. Some probably don't. They think they can evaluate uh, an athlete as as well as anybody, but I don't think that's the case. I think if Nick Saban starts showing – uh, a lot of interest in a young man that you should take that into account. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree. And so he chose Tennessee over Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia, Penn State, and Florida. That's a pretty good collection of schools that wanted him. It wasn't like he chose Tennessee over Virginia, where he's from, or anything like that. He chose them over some pretty big-name schools. So I would say that this is actually a pretty big pickup. He's uniquely tall for a running back, I would say, at one. And depending on what Josh Heupel wants, I would assume that he's going to be your feature every down back. And if that's the case, he probably needs to put on 15 pounds. But one night needing to put on 15 pounds and you're more than two years from enrolling on campus isn't that big of a deal. So that, that you got plenty of time to put that on with summer workouts. So I think this is a great pickup for Tennessee, honestly. I think it's a very underrated pickup. I think when you look at, again, every school on there is – in the top 10 in recruiting this year, except for Florida, I think, but I think Florida's right fringe top 10. So I I think this is a great move for Tennessee to add Peyton Lewis. Yeah, I think it is too. And I think the, the goal is to find that special tailback. I feel like they have, this is not a shot at Jalen Wright, uh, who if not for the fumbling issue, we would have seen more of last year. It's not a shot at Jabari small who continues to get banged up, even despite adding the 15 pounds. But I feel like you've got to, bunch of to to date ourselves a little bit you got a bunch of tony thompson's you got a bunch of travis stevens that's not a shot but i don't think that you have the elite i'm going to hammer you down throughout the game top of tailback right now nor do you have the home run threat yet i think you'll have that with dylan sampson but i think that if this offense finds a special tailback which i don't think they have on the roster yet 
as far as a complete three down type of tailback. And remember, they've got to do that with tempo. If they find a special tailback, it hits a whole nother gear and a whole nother level. I don't think you have to have it, but I think you really want to have it. Yeah, basically, they don't have Tony Thompson. I mean, they have Tony Thompson. They don't have Chuck Webb. Thank they, you. Yes, they don't have the guy. They've got the guy that if the blocking's what it should be, he's got the right vision and athleticism to get the yards he needs to get. They don't have the guy that a design call for a five or six yard gain can turn it into an 80 yard touchdown run. They don't have that guy yet. And that's always, you're right. Those type of running backs, those really special running backs you always want. Quite honestly, Dave, I, for, outside of all purpose backs, Alvin Kamara is obviously an all purpose back. I don't know if Tennessee has had a back like that since Jamal Lewis, have they? I know they thought Gerald Riggs was that, but I didn't really think he was. No, I was, I, I was about to tell a joke, and you've got your Tony Thompsons, you've got your Travis Stevens, and then you've got your Jalen Hurds in that group because Kamara should have played more than Hurd. But I, <laughs> I, I didn't think that joke would play. So no, I think you've got a bunch of I think you've got a bunch of very good tailbacks. I think a special tailback is a one in a million. Smoky Mountain Red says uh, that a huge ad that speed and hypo's offense will make defenses have to play man to man on every snap. I agree. I think that uh, Tennessee wants the Alvin Kamara type because you can be so deadly in the passing game and you are playing three downs. At six foot, 190 pounds, is Peyton Lewis that guy? Once he puts on another natural 20 to 25 pounds, he's at 225. I think he can be that guy because he's a fast guy. Dylan Sampson, who you know I've crowed about a lot to this point, Caleb, is a guy that I don't know that necessarily has the size to be a three down back. So I think you've got to run special stuff for him. Before we get to second down, remember remember Campbell, Cunningham, Taylor, and Hahn. That's where I got my LASIK done. Not wearing contacts. I am not wearing glasses, and it's awesome. Campbell, Cunningham, Taylor, and Han. They are fantastic. All right, so let's get to uh, second down. Second down, as we look back on Tennessee's big 865 recruiting weekend, second down, was the weekend a huge or respectable success? Anytime you pick up a commitment, it has to be a success, but second down, Huge or respectable success? Respectable. It will be huge if they can maybe get a couple of steals and they make sure they lock up Boo Carter. If they can lock up Boo Carter, that will make it a huge success because that's really the one that they really need to to lock up more than anybody else. And if they get Sammy Brown, it's a success greater than huge. I don't know where you go above huge. But if they can get Sammy Brown and Boo Carter, that's those are the two to watch out for. Right. The five-star linebacker, Boo Carter, out of the Chattanooga area. So that leads me to third down. I will say it's a respectable success. And if one of those guys drop, let's try to say this week because we want to attribute it back to this specific visit. And there's a chance Boo could drop this week or later this summer based off what I'm told. So will the balls get another this week? That's third down. I will actually say no. They don't pick up another commitment this week, but don't be surprised if you hear something from Boo on a Monday afternoon or Tuesday that he wants to go this week. Just based off what I've been told, don't be stunned if that happens. But I will go now as of this moment that the Vols do not pick up another commitment this week. I agree. And the biggest reason I agree is because the the surest lock on this list, Edwin Spillman, 
who also might, I think, be the most overrated on this list, but that's a different story. But the surest lock on this list wants to take all his official visits before he commits, and that's not going to happen until the summer. So I think Edwin Spillman's going to commit to Tennessee, but he's not committing this week. Smoky Mountain Red says respectable. I'm going to say that too. I think if Boo drops on a Monday afternoon or a Tuesday, then I think that could be that would make it a, a very commendable and huge monstrous success. Sammy Brown, I just get the feeling that's a long play. Let's go fourth down next get. I think you and I agree. If it's going to be anybody, it's going to be Boo Carter, right? Yes. If it's going to be anybody, it's going to be Boo Carter. Unless Boo Carter decides to drag this out, at which point, like I said, Edwin Snowman will be it. But I think I, – because I think Snowman's committing the minute he takes his last visit. He's he's going to commit to Tennessee but next week. But... Let me tell you my thoughts real quick on, uh, on, on Boo Carter, okay? First, I'm going to tell you Campbell Cunningham, Taylor Hahn. Campbell Cunningham, Taylor Hahn, I'm not wearing glasses. I'm not wearing LASIK. They're absolutely local, and they're incredible. Other eye offices will fly people in from Florida. You won't even talk to them. They called me on a Sunday night and just say, hey, how's it going? That's Campbell Cunningham, Taylor, and Hahn. They have the uh, local individual vision centers as well, but when you need LASIK or you need cataract surgery for your eyes, Campbell Cunningham, Taylor, and Hahn, they've got it all. So, Check them out, Campbell Cunningham, Taylor, and Hunt. I'm getting a weird vibe from Boo Carter. I'm just going to be honest, that he's enjoying the process a little too much, that this is dragging on a little too much. I think he's going to end up at Tennessee. He has every right to take his allotment of official visits and take his time, but the simple fact is we're, we're, we're kind of at a – a scenario here where it's looked like Tennessee for a long time. So if not, why not pull the trigger? You had the transfer last year from high school to high school. It kind of fit, feels like this could get a little bit interesting and then maybe he's enjoying the process a little bit. Thoughts on Boo? I think he is, but is that a problem? I've heard of a lot of athletes who enjoy the recruiting process and they're still committed. I mean – you get free, you know how much you get free travel and a bunch of free stuff. I do the same thing, quite honestly. If no, that's fair, I mean, you would like for a guy if he's going to end up at your school to go ahead and commit early, right? So that you get the momentum from it. But it's not necessarily fair to ask them to do that. So we felt like the we had a question. Yes, sorry, the shocking question is given how much we know on the inside about this. The schools have to know more. So why are the schools willing to give him so much if they're pretty sure he's going to Tennessee? <laughs> So your implication is you think he's really good. Well, no, I'm, what I'm saying is why are the other schools so – yeah, that's my implication because they're working really – it seems like they're willing to go all out with these – when they with the, when, when they host him, knowing that Tennessee is a significant favorite. I feel like my understanding of recruiting is you don't really waste your time hosting, you know, going all out with athletes you know are probably committed elsewhere. That's why I would argue it's a little bit disconcerting because he could be telling – other schools he's very much still in play so i'll just throw that out there um i think that he ends up at tennessee but it's gotten to the point where it would be a bigger loss than a bigger get at some point because his name's been on the forefront of recruiting for so long that if tennessee were to lose him i think it would be a monstrous negative if they get him eh, it's pretty good uh, I, and i'm not i'm not trying to undermine his talent whatsoever it just seems like this has gone on for quite some time so boo carter we'll see he was there over the weekend this is a group of guys that was already they were already committed uh like the merklinger kid and, and they're kind of recruiting each other or they're on the verge of committing so 
So I think that's why you saw Peyton Lewis go ahead and drop. And then a change on Tennessee's roster. We didn't really see this one coming. At least I didn't. We will get Caleb's thoughts with the H. What the? What was he thinking? Release the hounds. The Dave Hooker Show. Keep cool. A presentation of offthehooksports.com. So we have a young man entering the transfer portal, one that I did not think would happen. What can you tell us about some movement in Tennessee's football roster, Caleb Calhoun? Yeah, so defensive lineman Deshaun Terry has entered the portal. He had six sacks over the – I'm sorry, six tackles for a loss over the past two years, three sacks, 35 tackles. He's been a pretty solid rotational linebacker. He transferred to Tennessee from Kansas – was one of Josh Heupel's first transfer signees when he first took over. And now he's in the portal. I think he was a solid rotational player. He's the type of rotational player you want. But I don't think – I think this is a sign of the success Tennessee is having at defensive line among other players more than anything. I think what happened was DeJon Terry – I think he realized he was going to be the odd man out after spring ball. I think he waited until now because I think he – they say you're not supposed to do this. I believe they do. I believe kids do this. I think that he was taking my advice and making sure that he had a landing spot before he decided to pull the trigger and enter the portal and enter the portal. And so my guess is you're going to see him land somewhere pretty quickly after this. Yeah. And it, it may just be Kansas, right? Um, could, could he end up at Kansas? Um, Back at Kansas? Yeah. I mean, I've already seen that possibly – uh, perpetuated by a Kansas website that wants that to happen. But I guess that's a possibility. He doesn't, to me, have the pedigree just to open up the door and obviously doesn't have the pedigree to call Alabama or Georgia, right, and say I'm coming, or Ohio State, Michigan, any of those schools. But he could, could he call – does he have the gravitas to call a Kentucky or a South Carolina – or uh, I'm trying to think of another team that's kind of on the verge of a competing for a national championship. I don't think he's a we, – we call it anywhere, somewhere, nowhere, guys. He's a somewhere guy. I don't think he's an anywhere guy that could just call up anybody and say, hey, I'm showing up in Tuscaloosa, right? I agree. I agree. He's a somewhere guy. Dave, I, you know, you've talked about him a lot, and we haven't seen him, like, take that next step, but we've talked about his potential. Could this be a sign of Elijah Simmons finally being what we think he can be? It could be, and but but if it is, you bring up that point. It's a great, it's a great point. It could be Elijah Simmons. But here's the other thing: Do you ever have depth on the defensive line and offensive line with a transfer portal? I mean, there are guys. I mean, there was a time where Albert Hainsworth was depth. I know that sounds crazy right now, but he wasn't the first guy to run out on the field, and being able to play and play extensively in a backup role helped him become one of the greatest defensive tackles of what our generation. At one point, but he was depth at one point. So if I'm a school, if I'm if I'm a coach, I look at this guy in particular in Terry. And I think that's the guy you don't want to lose, because by the end of September, if a guy goes down or he plays at a high level, he could be your starter. Yet Billy Ratliff played in place of Jeff Coleman as our Celebrate 98 series goes on. And we've got a lot of people lined up this week. Billy Ratliff played in place of Jeff Coleman at times because Jeff was the older, more established player. 
Billy Ratliff doesn't make that play against Arkansas. If Jeff Coleman doesn't look over and say, Billy, I need you to step in here. I'm gassed. So that's the part that that concerns me. You you want at least four defensive tackles, more like six to enter the season in the SEC because a couple of guys are going to fall by the wayside injury-wise. Dave, I think they have that. I think they have six. I'm going down the roster even now. With, let's just name even with even without Terry. Even without Terry. Okay, so let's just okay. let's just let's name the go-tos real quick. There is the there is Karat Garland, the experienced veteran of the group. There is Amari Thomas, the potential superstar of the group. Let me and, get what Hank, let me get what Hank Kingsley thinks about all these guys. Yeah. So if they're ready to be starters or they're ready to be productive players, by the way. Here we go. Hey now. Both those guys hey are. All right, and then here's third, also ready to be a starter, Bryson Eason. Hey, now. Agreed. So we're already halfway there. All right, let's just name the other guys that we're talking about that could be on here. Tyree West. That's a barely hey, now. Hey, now. But I'm already at – but he's – that we're talking already at fourth on the roster. Now, the guy I'm high on who I think pushed Jordan Phillips into the transfer portal back in December because of what he did when he arrived early, a true freshman, Nathan Robinson. That's crazy. I'm not ready to go there with Nathan Robinson yet. You're not ready to go there with Nathan Robinson. You may change my mind in three months, a year, or whenever, but I'm not going there yet. That you would look at him and say, it's Alabama this weekend, Simmons, uh, West, these other guys are hurt. You got to start. I mean, they have to fit that mold. It's not just taking snaps. So what you're saying is we're still stuck at four then. Okay, I'll go five. I'll go five. Arizona State transfer, Omar Norman Lott. Hey, now. I'll give you that one. All right, they have five. So they may have six. They may have six. They have five. All right. They may have. I'm not even done. Elijah Simmons. Oh, you didn't even mention Simmons. All right. Maybe a little optimistic, but we'll see. Adam Rittenberg joins us next. He knows more about the Big Ten than anybody I've ever seen in my life. That includes you, Herb Street. With Caleb Calhoun, I'm Dave Hooker. Uh, I love his work, and we'll uh, talk to him here momentarily. Stay tuned. Two minutes, he's Caleb Calhoun. I'm Dave Hooker, off the hooksports.com. And Craving Wings, South North Shore location, where we've heard people say that you can get the best wings in East Tennessee. Pero quien es este? El número 87, Jacob Warren. I'm just doing six of my sauce, 87, please. Imposible, señorita. Dale seis más. Look at these wings, perfectas, deliciosas, fantásticas. Man, I don't know what you're saying, but it sounds awesome. How do you say fresh, never frozen in Spanish? Frescas, nunca congeladas. Make your way to Craven Wings and get you seis más. But what was funny about Cadiz, we were a full continuum of care at that time. We had detox, we had inpatient, we had outpatient. So we were doing a lot of the things that we do now. But now we just do them so much better. It's really a simple program, but it's for complicated people. I am what I am, and now i got to do something about it. You can take your life back. Call Cadis today. Got cataracts? We can fix that. Never miss another moment. With a little help from Drs. Campbell, Cunningham, Taylor, and Hahn at cctis.com. Do you want to own the more that owns every job? Then get to Vasty Lawn and Garden in Cleveland and get you a Toro. I'm David Vasty, here to talk to you about Toro. 
With a Toro Zero turn, you'll get more out of every minute and you'll reach the finish line faster. At Bassies, we like to say, no matter if you're mowing three acres a week or 11 lawns a day, homeowners and business owners alike find confidence in equipment they can trust from top to bottom. Bassie Lawn and Garden, Highway 60 North in Cleveland. Man alive, it's worth the drive. Our family has been creating jewelry since 1986, each piece unique with a story all its own. I'm Rick Terry with Rick Terry Jewelry Designs. I'm a jeweler, and I want to be your jeweler. We're grateful that you chose us to be Knoxville's best jeweler. My family and staff look forward to serving you. So please come see us. Kingston Pike and Campbell Station Road in the heart of Farragut and downtown on Gay Street, right next to the Tennessee Theater. A college football tradition like no other. Yes, sirree, boys and girls. Or the guy that just won't leave. Wow, that is sad. The Dave Hooker Show, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and the free Off the Hook Sports app. A presentation of Off the Hook Sports. Back to Dave Hooker. Hope you had a fantastic holiday weekend. Again, we want to thank all of those that gave the ultimate sacrifice on Memorial Day. Remember, that's what it's all about. And just can't imagine what some families have been through over the years. So God bless to you. And thank you uh, very much for your loved one's service and, and giving the, the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, I want to remind you that portions of the program are brought to you by Andy Mason, andymasonrealestate.com. He's got your home in Knoxville, best prices, best service in the biz. It's Andy Mason of andymasonrealestate.com. You will love Andy. He's my realtor, should be yours, can save you thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. Adam Rittenberg from ESPN joins us now. Adam, how are you, sir? Doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, I, I I do appreciate the time. So, so you got Tennessee fans riled a little bit last week. Uh, I, I think you may have seen our tweet where we tagged you. That's that's what these lists are supposed to do, right? Definitely part of it. I mean, not everyone's going to be happy. Hopefully, people can appreciate you know that a it's May, and I, I guess everybody needs something to get riled up about. Um, and there's a little bit more nuance to this one in that it's it's not just a one year look. It's it's a it's a three year projection. It's really personnel based. So recruiting rankings matter. Um, there's always debates about, you know, how much do they matter in this type of ranking? They do matter um, if, if, if you are recruiting at the nationally elite level. But I think Tennessee's in a great position offensively. They certainly lose a lot from this past season with those draft picks. Um, it's still early. And that's something that I'd also remind people in, in Josh Heupel's tenure. He's done a really nice job, but it's still early. It's only been a couple of years. Um, and you know, you can, teams can adjust to you. There's still a little bit of the prove it, um, out there for, for Tennessee, but I, I think the program's in really good shape and I think people will be happy with where Tennessee ends up in the, uh, in the team rankings, which I'm putting together right now. Oh, there you go. Nice tease. When does that come out? I think it'll come out, uh, either end of next week or the following week. It just, a, it just, a, it's more of a programming issue on our end, but, uh, the piece is uh, about 60% done. I've already done the Tennessee blurb. I can't tell you where it's going to be, but uh, I think fans will be pretty happy with the, where the Vols end up. All right, good stuff. So you've got the top five offensive power rankings, and a, a lot of people do these these sorts of things, but explain yours how it it is more than just this upcoming season. It's It, it delves into the future. If you can kind of discuss how you came up with this idea and what factors into that. 
Yeah, we've done this for a few years across sports at ESPN.com, especially in the in the ESPN Plus space. Um, and it's it's again, it's a three year projection. So it, it's it's it, having a lot of starters returning is great, but if all of them are seniors, you're looking at a major reset in this case for 2024. Uh, if you have a lot of starters coming back who are going to be there presumably through the 2024 or maybe in some cases 2025 season, that can certainly help your cause. But then it goes to the recruiting rankings. It goes to the transfer portal, how well you've done in those areas um, that also factors into where teams end up. Uh, so, you know, again, an offense that is senior laden and a team that isn't recruiting that well, um, you, you might be a little less bullish on that particular unit versus one where there's a track record of success, head coach, quarterback, guys going to the NFL, and then they're also doing well in both the traditional recruiting areas, but also in the transfer portal. So, for example, you know, Florida State has done really well in the portal the last couple of years, and they've taken a step up offensively um, with a lot of guys coming back from last year's unit, which was pretty good. So you know, that, that, that's an example of a team that wasn't even ranked last year uh, that, that's, that's ranked, I think it was uh, 10 or 11 in the offense rankings, and, and we'll probably end up around the same in the team rankings this year. And there's something you alluded to that I, I wanted to back you on, because the headline, when somebody sees that Tennessee's not in, not high up on the ranking, they're going to freak out after the season they had. But, you know, somebody I spoke to within Tennessee's athletic department said after this year, because of what they lose and the dependence on some Jeremy Pruitt guys and dependence on the transfer portal that next year, I think 2024, when people have that kind of circled as the maybe national championship run, this person actually had the opposite take. He said, that's when it gets dicey because of some of the linemen they lose. I'm sure you looked into that as well. Right. Yeah. And again, people naturally, their eyes go to quarterbacks and we do, we do one of these specifically for quarterbacks for that reason. Quarterback position, I'm not going to ever minimize the importance of, of that spot and having insurance if, you know, your starter doesn't play well or goes down with injury. Um, you know, Tennessee's in a pretty good spot from a, a, uh, a quarterback standpoint. Um, but the offensive line is huge. And, you know, that's where I know you guys raised valid criticisms. And, and again, I'm, I'm here to take all of them. But, um, you know, you look at what Georgia has done on the offensive line. It's an elite offensive line operation. Alabama, elite offensive line operation. You know, Michigan's won the Joe Moore Award the last couple of years. And so you just have a little bit more confidence maybe at this point in Josh Heupel's tenure. That's not to say in a year we're having a different conversation that Tennessee will be able to reload year after year and be an elite offensive line to run an elite offense. Those other programs are just a little bit more established at this point. Um, and that, that's a critical spot because it's, it's overlooked too often. There's just certain programs that have great reputations uh, for, for, for offensive line play. You know, uh, Notre Dame is one of them. Notre Dame's trying to pick up in other areas, they, but they've, they've nailed the offensive line. Michigan has taken a major step forward as far as their offensive line play. Penn State, you know, one reason why they are so bullish on this season and feel like they can contend for the Big Ten and the college football playoff is they finally figured out the offensive line. That was a spot that was lacking considerably. James Franklin went through several O-line coaches. They just couldn't get that spot right. You know, if health holds, they should be one of the better offensive lines in the Big Ten this year. Florida State, the team I just mentioned, you know, I did a story on this a few years ago. They may have been the, the most underperforming position group in the country, O-line, for a while. That's why they went through all those coaches, uh, and, and they were just a disaster. 
they have now, thanks to Alex Atkins, Mike Norvell, gotten to a place where they feel pretty good about their O-line spot. Uh, this year's group, future groups, recruiting, portal, they're able to bring in some good players on the O-line. So that's a critical spot. It's a good question. So, Adam, <laughs> to the uh, to the – to the issue with Tennessee, I, I totally understand your point about the offensive line. And I'm going to name a couple of schools. You just made, named one who I think you are, we are, we feel safer seeing they're going to have a better offensive line in the next couple of years in Tennessee, or they're more likely to, they're at least more sure. However, with the quarterback issue, how do you reconcile Tennessee having beyond Joe Milton, Nico Iamaliava versus Alabama, who, right now looks really, really desperate at quarterback. They don't look like they have their guy. And also versus Michigan, who, yes, I know they got Jaden Davis, but Jim Harwell doesn't really have the best doesn't have the best track record of getting the most out of five star quarterbacks. So comparing that, how do the, how does how do you reconcile putting those two ahead of Tennessee with that issue? Yeah, I think the Alabama one for sure is a valid concern because in the in the immediate, there's certainly a bit of red flags going on in Tuscaloosa. That's why you bring in Tyler Buckner, who's far from a savior. He's a guy that has a lot of talent, but but still has to avoid those multi-interception performances and it's got to stay healthy. And I don't think he was going to beat out Sam Hartman this spring at Notre Dame. You know, their recruiting is still pretty good behind him, even if if uh, if the two quarterbacks who competed this spring don't pan out. They have other guys who might be a Nico. Um, you, you just don't know. We don't know if Nico is going to be Nico yet. That, that's a little bit of the unknown. Certainly Tennessee in the immediate has a better quarterback situation than Alabama. You know, Michigan's an interesting case because you're right that, that over the course of Jim's uh, tenure there at Michigan, they haven't been great at quarterback. Uh, I think they, they certainly took a step last year with J.J. McCarthy, and there's a pretty good chance he plays two more years before turning it over to Jaden Davis. I think he'll, he's going to be a really good quarterback. Uh, you know, it, with the right type of development going forward. Will he ever be a top 10 pick? Maybe not, but I think he can be a, a very, very good college quarterback for Michigan the next couple of years. The other thing to keep in mind with, I, I would say both Michigan and Georgia, is that when those offenses are rolling, with the way they dominate the line of scrimmage, you know, it's so easy to be a defensive player with, with those offenses. They, they, I saw them play, I saw Michigan against Penn State last year run for more than 400 yards and just overpower a, a unit that's pretty darn good that had a couple of players uh, selected in the NFL draft. They, they were no match for Michigan. So that style of offense, when it's rolling, it is almost more effective than the up-tempo, <laughs> score a bunch of points because of what it does to your defense. So that, that's a little bit of a down-the-list factor to me, but I, I just think that, that when you have a, an offense like Michigan's was for much of last year, not all of last year, and they still have steps to get better, but a unit like that that can average over 40 points and dominate the line of scrimmage and dominate time of possession that does wonders for your defense and makes it really hard for anybody to beat you. So Adam, I've got a little bit of old school, new school to me back in the day. If you got a transfer, I'd give it less than 50, 50 of sticking because usually that young man had an issue at his previous school. Now with the transfer portal, maybe he just wants to play more. He could be a, a choir boy that with incredible incredible athletic ability, he just wants to play more. But when you do these lists, how much do you weigh the success or lack thereof of the transfer portal? Because still, if, if you're an upper echelon type of team that's competing for championships, if you basically crap out on one of these transfer portal cycles, 
you could go from an 11, 12 win team to an eight win team, I would think. So how do you weigh that? I have no idea how you would even go about that. Yeah, it's a great question. I think you have to look at the program and their track record with recruits. And, and that's where I think Tennessee fans should be really excited because you saw what – I mean, Hennett Hooker was, was on, the, on the trash bin at, at Virginia Tech. His career was over. Um, there were questions about his toughness. And then he comes out and becomes a record-setting quarterback at Tennessee and a perfect fit for Josh Heupel's system. You know, Brew McCoy, uh, and he's had a weird journey and a crazy journey, but he's a guy that, that's having success. There's been other transfers that have come into Tennessee. So I, I think it's more – you know, yeah, there's certainly an element of, of unknown with every transfer. Is it going to work out or not? But then you look at the programs that have had maybe more success than others with, with transfers. Michigan has done a nice job recently helping their, uh, their, their program with, with some key transfers in, in key spots. Uh, if you're Florida State, you saw what they did last year with a guy like Jared Verse on the defensive line coming in from, from Albany, of all schools. Uh, so th that, that, that's, a, that's a point in their favor. It doesn't mean that all, all transfers are going to work out. You know, I think it's why Colorado is such an interesting test case this year, guys, because they've brought in so many transfers from so many places, most of whom who don't have a whole lot of production behind their name. They may be big-time recruits who didn't work out for whatever reason. Is it going to work there in, in Boulder? That's what makes it so interesting. So I guess I look at it like how, how does a program and a coach do with how, how they've done over the course of their career with, with different transfers? How does that program accommodate transfers and allow them to be the best that they can be? And I think that's what makes Tennessee and its offense so attractive to players because of what they've already done with some transfers, you know, Hennon Hooker at being at the top of that list. I still, I still don't envy you on that because you're going to write about somebody who's had success in the transfer portal and then suddenly it's going to blow up somebody. I don't know who it's going to be, but somebody will be that coach. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it's 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 a part. Every coach has to deal with this um, year to year, and uh, you know, some of them aren't going to be be as, as strong. But I think it's also, you know, you look at which coaches. It's almost at least at the quarterback spot going to be almost a guarantee that they that they have a a draftable quarterback or a quarterback who's you know putting up numbers that 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 you know re really jump off the page Lincoln Riley is at that point what he's been able to do it with transfers pretty good chance that a guy like Dorian Singer who is an all pack 12 wide receiver at Arizona is going to go to USC and have a have a decent impact uh, with an already talented group he's obviously had tremendous success with quarterback transfers uh you know Caleb Williams I don't even know if that counts because he recruited him to Oklahoma but uh he's obviously having great success there so I, I think it's just looking at the coach looking at the system I wrote today uh for ESPN.com a story about DJ Owangalale at Oregon State trying to get a fresh start and then five other quarterbacks around the country that are trying to get fresh starts this is just part of the deal Keaton Slovis who was one of the players I wrote about he's on his third school BYU maybe BYU's the place that brings out the best in him. You, you know, uh, Devin Leary going to Kentucky, trying to get that bump that, that Will Levis had la uh, a couple of years ago with Kentucky coming in from Penn State. So it, it's, it is, it's a, it'll be fun to track it in 10 years of the portal, which schools have done the best with transfers and which ones have, have fallen short. Adam, that's a perfect seamless transition because that's what we were going to ask you about next was the uh, article uh, you did today on the quarterbacks looking for a fresh start. And you saw quite a few, I saw quite a few interesting ones on there. Who of those do you think is the best of the quarterbacks looking for a fresh start, the most likely to have success this year? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, my, my instinct is to say Sam Hartman because he's of, of those six players that I profiled, he's not necessarily one who's coming off of an injury like Devin Leary is or 
you know, needed a scheme change like DJ Uangalale or even Brandon Armstrong, who was a record-setting player at Virginia. He's essentially reuniting with his offensive coordinator, Robert and I at NC State, trying to recapture that magic. Whereas, you know, Sam Hartman, yes, he has to learn a new system. It's a bigger stage. Notre Dame, not nearly as talented at wide receiver, I think, as Wake Forest has been. And so that's an area where he's going to have to make those players better. But, I mean, shoot, the guy's the ACC all-time leader in touchdown passes, number two in passing yards. It's hard to envision you know, Sam Hartman really struggling too much you know, with that type of experience at Notre Dame. But they're all interesting. Uh, you know, Hudson Card, for example, at Purdue, you know, they're, they're installing the air raid offense there with Graham Harrell. He's really excited to be part of that, that offense. I don't think they're, he necessarily has the talent around him. Uh, and that's what you kind of look at as well. BYU's got some talent around Keaton Slovis. He seems really comfortable with the coordinator, Aaron Roderick. Oregon State returns an all-pack 12 running back and Damian Martinez so that DJ Oangalale, who, by the way, still has to win that job. Uh, if he is the starter, he's got some help around him. But I think in terms of just pure best, it's hard not to go with Sam Hartman, given what he's done over the course of his career. So if you would have not watched any games last year and just paid attention to the narrative of the NFL draft, I, I, I'm getting I'm getting to a point here with Devin Leary in Kentucky, but you would have thought that Will Levis was John Elway stuck at Stanford when he was at <laughs> Kentucky last year. Okay, And Dave and I talk a lot like we didn't see that. We thought Will Levis was a, a, a cause of a lot of their problems, quite honestly, last year. Do you think? SEC teams should maybe fear Devin Leary even more at Kentucky. Is he a big, because I think he might be better than Will Levis. I don't know what you think. Do you think he could be a real big threat to the rest of the SEC East? He could be. Now, there's a couple of factors here. You know, Will Levis thrived when Liam Cohen was the offensive coordinator. Uh, and then Liam left last year for the Rams. Now he's back. Um, that could, that certainly is in line to help Devin Leary. I think the issue at Kentucky is, will they have the offensive line to allow Devin to, to be at his best. That offensive line for Kentucky had been a staple of theirs. I know their coach passed away a few years ago. It was a horrible situation. They did not seem the same to me. That doesn't absolve uh, uh, Will Levis and some of the mistakes that he made last year, because I agree with you. There were times where you know, he was the reason that Kentucky was underachieving. You know, I was there preseason, guys, um, and there was so much optimism around Will Levis. Um, I remember talking with, with Mike Stoops coming off the practice field one day and you know, he was, you know, he's obviously been around for a long time. You know, he, he was just saying how, you know, that is one of the best college quarterback he's ever seen. And so, you know, some of it's on him, some of it's on the O-line, some of it's on the other pieces around, but, you know, talking to Devin Leary, I think when healthy and when protected, he can be a, a really effective player. And it's really an interesting player to watch. I mean, shoot, the SEC East quarterbacks guys are, are fascinating this year because you now have Leary in, in, in Lexington. You have Joe Milton and who knows, possibly Nico in Knoxville. You have Spencer Rattler back in, uh, in South Carolina. You know, Georgia's got a competition. Uh, Carson Beck looking like the guy there. But um, it, it's an interesting group. And, and, you know, who kind of steps out and becomes an all-conference level player on that side of the SEC is going to be really interesting. Adam Rittenberg of ESPN, we greatly appreciate it. Adam, we will uh... – We'll talk to you soon. You do have the uh, quarterback transfer story that is out there. Anything else you want to tease moving forward? Well, yeah, just the team power rankings, which again are a, you know it's a combination of the the three previous versions: quarterback, offense, defense that we've done already. That'll be coming out relatively soon, and then we'll we'll have some some more Colorado coverage uh, later on this month, as that story just doesn't seem to be going away. No, it's not. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate the time.
Thanks, guys. Thanks for having Adam me. Rittenberg of ESPN. And his story on the quarterbacks makes me wonder at some point, and it's up, by the way. It, does Tennessee have a concern in that they're relying so heavily on the transfer portal? Yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, let's not let's not de- debate that. I'm I pride myself in being honest and objective with the message board, but listen, you're going to head into next season, heading into the 2024 campaign, and you've lost a lot, particularly on the offensive line. So are you depending on the fact that you'll get two offensive linemen that have chemistry, that are able to compete at a high level? This is different than Alabama picking up a Jameer Gibbs to fill a hole. This is Tennessee right now surviving on the transfer portal to get a Thornton to replace what they lost in the draft. Um, we, we could go on and on and on about guys that they have gotten, obviously the quarterbacks and the, the portal, the Peely to hopefully do what Jeremy Banks was supposed to do last year, at least statistically, maybe not as an impact player. He's a different kind of player, but you see where I'm going here, Caleb. I mean, they have to Tennessee right now has to hit on 75 to 80% of the transfers they bring in to keep playing at a high level. At some point, I don't think that's sustainable, which leads you back to high school football recruiting. And we brought that up and it sounds like a wet blanket for some people, Caleb, but it is it's the facts. That still is the most important thing, not the transfer portal. Yes. And that leads to, there's two things that make this crucial. This next month may be the most crucial recruiting month in Josh Heupel's entire career at Tennessee. I, I didn't know you were going there, but I don't think you're over-speaking that at all. I don't think that's hyperbole whatsoever. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's it's He has to build his class for 2024. Then if he does that, if he has the recruiting month that he needs to have, then they need one more all, transfer portal all season where they go buy a bunch of talent with NIL money and whatever. And then they'll be ready to go for 2024 because they'll be stabilized with the transfer portal talent. And then this elite 2024 recruiting class. And then 2025 comes and they can recruit again, pretty well. And the 2024 class will be ready to step in and start playing. I think usually elite, like particularly on average a five star is almost always ready to go by his sophomore year, right? A true five star. Well, he should be, or he's a, Probably at that point, you wonder if he's a bust. So, yeah, or or a high four star like Justin Williams Thomas last year, the running back. You you began to wonder if, if he wasn't seeing the field, and there was talk that he could be redshirted, which there was early talk on that. From what I was told, that that was that was not a good sign. Sometimes you can get a really good sign beforehand. For instance, uh, I mean, I would be able to tell you already if Nico, we're stumbling. He's not. He's not stumbling. So, but you, if you want to look back at the 2023 class that was signed by, by Tennessee, it is 10th. If you want to use the composite ranking, but uh, Nico obviously is the headliner of that class. So is a guy like Ethan Davis, who is a little bit more of, I, I do believe a project. So is a guy like, I think Arian Carter is going to be really good, but David Hobbs, is he going to be ready for year one? Same thing with wide receiver Nathan Laycock. I don't think he's going to be ready for year one. I don't think he needs to be. Cam Selden, the the athlete at running back, is a four-star guy. But 
I'm going down the list of the four-star guys, and I've got to go pretty far down to find a Larry Johnson the third, an offensive tackle out of Hutchison Community College. So that's not even high school recruiting. Bison Lang, who I've heard good things about recently, and I think will be a player, a little bit more of a project. Three-star guy, six foot five, three hundred and thirty-five pounds, needs to trim down a little bit. And then you get to the transfers um, pretty quickly. You also have uh, Aiden Bustle out of Mount Juliet, but he's a three-star guy. I mean, Tennessee needs to have three or four four-star guys that are committed on the offensive line each and every year, Caleb Calhoun. And you figure two of those will bust because the old rule in recruiting is 50-50. So you figure two of those will bust, so you walk away with one and a half, two good prospect prospects each and every year, Caleb. That's where you've got to be not depending on the transfer portal each and every January and May. Yes, exactly. You need three to four. And for those who question my second year role, we always talk about the Georgia trio here at Tennessee in 97. They all emerged in 1998. They all, that was their breakout year was 98 after they kind of flew under the radar, but you're right. You, you gotta get three to four, four star offensive linemen. And you're right. You, you know, no more than, two of them being bust. I mean, I, I go back to, uh, you don't want to go back here, but Dave, you don't want the 2002 class with Brandon Jeffries, Rob Smith. Um, oh, uh, I'm pulling it up now. Heath Benedict, all highly touted linemen. None of them. I don't think ever saw the field. Did they? Uh, no, Heath Benedict ended up being a player. He and, uh, at another smaller school. And I want to say he passed away shortly before he was drafted. Um, oh no, but, really? I'm sorry. I should have. Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, but he and Philip Fulmer didn't see eye to eye. Rob Smith ended up playing a good. Well, I mean, we could take any year, but if you want to take the years under Philip Fulmer, for instance, I guarantee you there was a player or two that contributed to the offensive line at a high level, and it was at the very least a two-year starter in each and every one of Philip Fulmer's classes. I don't yes. think that's a huge, monstrous statement, is it? Um, and no, that's not but going there, out on a limb. But there um, were offensive line heavy classes in which the line, your percentages were so bad it caused issues. Like, okay, the class I'm bringing up now is 2002 class. He's been Michael in the Munoz Smith class. Brandon. Where's the Michael? No, that Munoz? was two. That was a 2000 class. Okay. Um, but this one had four. It had Heath Benedict, Rob Smith, Brandon Jeffries. None played for Tennessee, and then Cody Douglas. Who I do think played for Tennessee, but I don't think he played. I don't think he ever was lived up to his four star billing, honestly. And that, so you, you can't miss. Put it this way: you can't miss on four on all four linemen when they're all four and five stars in one class. No. That'll set you back. No, and I, I don't want to get into the recruiting rankings every single day, but they're going to get boost. And they're going to get stars by certain publications. So I'm going to tell you if a guy's really a five star or really a four star, or if he's actually a four or three. Uh, and I'll tell you that as we go along. It looks like the one decision that'll come out of SEC spring meetings this week is how many actual permanent opponents will SEC teams have and how many. SEC teams, will they play each and every year? Coming up, what's best for Tennessee? What's best for other SEC schools? What's best for the conference? 
two minutes. He is Caleb Calhoun. I'm Dave Hooker off the hooksports.com. Don't forget to check out our Celebrate 98 series. Coming up, we'll have the Travises, Travis Stevens, and Travis Henry. Back with you in two minutes. Sun, sand, and salt water, the beach is a very relaxing place. Unless you wear contacts. Ow! Open your eyes to the best the beach has to offer with LASIK Vision Correction from Campbell Cunningham Laser Center. Ah. Hi, Mike Davis here with City Heating and Air, reminding you to always dare to compare. Our team provides quality local heating and air service, installation, and maintenance across East Tennessee. We use only the best equipment like American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning for your residential, new construction, or commercial needs. Honesty, dependability, and customer satisfaction have been the cornerstones of our business since 1961. City Heat and Air. Our family has been creating one-of-a-kind pieces of jewelry in West Knoxville since 1986. Each piece is a combination of unique processes that bring your idea to life. Every day in our shop, a truly special item with a story all its own is being manufactured in our facility, bringing the history and family sentiment into a whole new generation of life. We are grateful that you chose us to be Knoxville's best jeweler, a title that we value and respect. Because to me, being a jeweler and owning a jewelry store are not the same thing. I'm Rick Terry. I'm a jeweler. And we want to be your jeweler. Kingston Pike and Campbell Station Road in the heart of Farragut and downtown on Gay Street right next to the Tennessee Theater. When you want a hard cider that's easy to enjoy, one that's crafted to perfection, you need Tennessee Cider Company. Some say it's the signature cider of the South. Others say it's the cure to your craving. They all say you'll savor every sip. With a selection of ciders free to sample, all it takes is one taste. Visit TNCiderCompany.com for more information, as well as to shop our ciders and merchandise online. Thirsty yet? Doors open at 10 a.m. Um, who's this guy? Hello, wizard! The Dave Hooker Show. Ooh. A presentation of Off the Hook Sports. What? YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and the free Off the Hook Sports app. Back to Dave Hooker. What do we got coming up, Caleb? Are we going to get into the almost comeback wins? Because you're going to really stick that knife in and twist it concerning the Celtics coming back from 3-0 only to twist an ankle and not show up in game 7 that was great. Yeah, do you wish uh do you wish they had just gotten swept at this point? Ah, kind of. I mean, it is funny you bring that sorta cuz I mean, the plan was I wasn't supposed to we took a long weekend for my uh anniversary. The plan was we were going to get up early and on Tuesday morning and drive home. And then when I heard of game 7, well, I wanted to watch seven with my son on Memorial Day, right? Hoofed it out of there, and I, at one possession, Jason Tatum turns his ankle, and I knew that it wasn't happening. There's a debate on uh, uh, Michael Munoz, uh, and I don't know why that's suddenly cropped up as a great offensive lineman for Tennessee. I thought he was very good. I thought without the 
Munoz name, he was just good. I didn't think that he was great, but there seems to be a lot of people that think he's great. And yes, uh, Rocky Top Tom, Travis Henry is coming on. All of them are coming on. And uh, I will tell Travis that he's a man. He's the man on the Celebrate 98 series. But was Michael Munoz a great offensive lineman? No, here's what... No, I remember watching Michael Munoz, and you could ask my brother, who was a little bit older than me, was watching was hardcore Tennessee fan, and just like I was, and he was frustrated that Aaron Sears wasn't playing over Michael Munoz earlier in their careers. And now the only thing I'll say with is there is the intangible factor and the leadership factor, and Michael Munoz was a great leader of that offensive line. I mean, after he he graduated after 2004, we you and I both know how out of shape the offensive line got in 2005, and I think that's because they didn't have a leader like Michael Munoz on that team, on that unit right there. But so leadership, he belonged somewhere on the line as a starter. But yeah, look, it, we saw the I'm sure you saw the raw potential in Aaron Sears the minute he stepped on campus, didn't you? Yes. Um, uh, no, I mean, I, Aaron Sears was a dog. I mean, he was one of the best offensive linemen that's ever played under Philip Fulmer, and that's saying a lot. So, I mean, he was very, very good. Michael Munoz was a good player who had degenerative, degenerative knee issues early on. By the way, Mr. Jones asking if T. Martin is coming on. Yes, he is. So we've got a lot to get to on that, and we may have an announcement of another publication coming out shortly if I can ever get my ducks in a row. Thank you, Caleb, for helping out on that. By the way, what are you sporting, like a Miami Vice-type jacket? Is that what's going uh, on? No, it is uh, it is kind of a Miami Vice jacket with a yeah. old Hollister yeah. shirt. I, 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 I have now canceled Hollister because the Abercrombie & Fitch CEO was just really, really mean and and, and you know wow but, man okay but i i got, I got this else? before i found i got this before i found out he fat james teenagers oh well i didn't know that i'm not even completely sure what that is um <laughs> <laughs> okay how does he do that through his clothes that's a whole nother discussion what do people need to do jacob warren what's up everybody this is jacob warren asking you to like subscribe and share Dave needs this. He does. All right. It is time for today's tough question. And I want you, the message board, to be incredibly interactive. If you're not, then I'm going to get very frustrated because this is what it's all about. Today's tough question brought to you by our friends at Craft Treats, CraftTreats.com. Get the promo code 20% off with Off the Hook. Use the promo code Off the Hook. Get 20% off. Boom. Here we go. Today's tough question. Take a side. Take a stand. The Dave Hooker Show, a presentation of OffTheHookSports.com. D, I saw your post on the YouTube page, and I was about to respond to it during the show, but I have like a rule of not responding to it during the show. So, But I will respond to it. We've got three up right now of the Celebrate 98 series. We've got Jeff Coleman. <coughs> Pardon me. We have uh, Billy Ratliff as well. So we're we're off and rolling. Who's our third, Caleb? I can't remember. Like the Jeff, worst. Uh, Dar- uh, Eric Westmoreland. Yes, Eric Westmoreland. So this week I don't have my list, but we got the Travises. We got Steve Johnson. We've got we'll have them all eventually. There are three out there right now, D. So you're correct. All right. So eight or nine opponents, eight or nine SEC games each and every season. I want to go down the pros and cons of both. 
what do you think of the concept of eight or nine? Because it will have a big difference on the amount of permanent opponents. will have a big difference on the landscape of what SEC teams are able to do. So what do you think, eight or nine? I mean, I think it's owed to the fans for there to be nine. That allows a little more competitive balance. So it's not completely if you if you do this one division 16 teams in a pod system it it allows for at least a little more competitive balance where there's not a giant distance in the type of schedules two different teams will play and it's just better games in general you look for the sake of fans fans don't deserve texas san antonio yukon and austin p all together amen and you amen and you're going my direction keep keep preaching yeah so i I think it's nine I will say this. I understand why the schools want to do eight. And this leads to something I have to bring up again. And I've harped on this. This leads, and I see his philosophy now, to me, to the way to Greg Sinke's philosophy on negotiating. So one of the underrated holdups, guys, with the eight or nine games is eight games with more easy non-conference games increases the likelihood that more SEC teams get into bowl games. So they get more payout from those bowl games and they increase the likelihood of their appearing in college football playoff games, New Year's six games. The reason they're doing that is because Greg Sankey did not negotiate a good deal with ESPN. He should have demanded twice as much as what they offered him. He negotiated that deal before Texas and Oklahoma joined. And it sounds like ESPN is like, yeah, we're sticking with this sweet deal. Y'all gave us where we massively underpaid. And the, it, so I would say, I understand the school saying, hey, if ES- ESPN wants the marquee games. That's why they want nine. They want more marquee games. I understand the school and the SEC saying, if you want marquee games, if you want more marquee games, give us more money. And Sankey is against that philosophy. He came out yesterday and he said money follows. And I'm like, no, money leads. It doesn't follow. I'm sorry. Right. Here is exactly what you what you need to think about with the two schedule models. And it's SEC spring meetings that are going on right now in Sandestin, Florida. An eight-game model would have members play one assigned SEC rival annually, plus seven additional opponents that rotate in alternating years. A nine-game model would have members play three assigned SEC rivals annually, annually, plus six additional opponents that rotate in alternating years. Here's the deal. You definitely want nine. And the reason you want nine is a philosophical reason of that the SEC is going to be considered considerably better. So while you may play a Vanderbilt, really that's pretty much it right now because we've even seen we've seen Missouri and Kentucky have good seasons, obviously South Carolina last year. So um, while you may play a Vanderbilt, and that may be a part of your three assigned SEC rivals on the nine-game opponent, well, good for you. I mean, that's probably going to be Tennessee. And I don't know that anybody else is going to have a sure-fired opponent as part of that three assigned SEC rivals. But there is Vanderbilt. So that helps Tennessee. But regardless, you want to see more SEC games. You want to see more SEC teams playing each other. That's my big-picture philosophical thrust of this if I were making a decision. I want to see South Carolina play LSU, even though it's not a tradition right now. But I want to see more SEC games on an annual basis. So that's where I am. I think it builds the conference. 
I think that right now with the 12-team playoff, if you went eight games and I'm an athletic director, I'm sitting back and I'm Mr. Burns. And I'm very, very intent on scheduling four cupcakes. And my non-cupcake is going to be like a Virginia, which is still a cupcake. It just has a bigger, more known name. So with a 12-team playoff, you're going to have four cupcakes if you go with an eight-game model. Whereas a nine game, you've got nine bona fide SEC teams. So that ain't a cupcake. Now you can do what you want to with the other three. Philosophically, that's where I am. Do you agree or disagree, Caleb? Philosophically, I'm with you. Philosophically, I'd keep the divisions. I'd want two 18 divisions, move Alabama and Auburn into the East, Missouri into the West, and you play the divisions every year because I think philosophically, it's more important to have annual rivals. That drives the conference. I mean, Tennessee playing Auburn, not Tennessee losing their annual rivalry with Auburn was, a, I know, a gut punch to a lot of older fans when this division changed in 1992. If Tennessee lost Alabama every year, and forget Tennessee, Alabama, I mean, how many rivalries would go by the wayside? Annual rivalries. People care about things like the series record in these rivalries, getting revenge, things like that. And if you do the 3 6, it gets a little better, but it's still Tennessee-South Carolina is one of the rivalries. So they're going to lose Kentucky and Georgia and Florida. And so I think that's where – philosophically, I'm for the divisions still. I understand I understand where the SEC is coming from not doing it. I will say I understand – but, I, again, I, I would say that ESPN's got a pony up, man. This is too good of a deal for them. They should be willing to pony up more money. I'm not questioning that deal like you are because I think the SEC's got something else in their back pocket. I don't think they make bad deals. And I think that they take into account the Marty and McGee show, for instance, talks a lot about the SEC. I think they take into account that ESPN is going to move towards being a very big proponent of the SEC and what they cover on Sports Center. So I think some of that stuff is tough to put an actual value on, Caleb, but that's why I did like the deal. So if if we're sitting here having the conversation and the deal is strictly what it was on paper and you're not promoting the heck out of the SEC on Sports Center every single night in the fall over other conferences, then yes, the SEC got the short end of the stick. But I think there's a gentleman's agreement they're going to be covered at a very, very high level. I go back to the NHL. Was it Gary Bettman? And when uh, when ESPN signed up the NHL again, which they didn't have them for years, here's exactly what Gary Bettman said. He said, well, if you guys do half as good of a job of covering me as you did burying me, then I should be very happy with this deal. So you can get buried by ESPN. I'm not saying the Big Ten's going to get buried, okay? But do I need to see a feature on an Oregon State quarterback who's never going to be relevant because of all the changes in conference realignment? Or would I rather see a story on a linebacker at Kentucky that could mess up Georgia or Alabama or Tennessee's title run? I think that's what you're going to see, and that has some value to it that may not be actually on printed page, if that makes sense. That probably does. They still could have gotten probably $2 billion more out of the deal. Agreed, agreed. There's the ha- they didn't get the best deal. There's a happy medium somewhere between what you're saying and what I'm saying. Yes, because the ESPN is 
they're going to be incentivized by that. You know, you don't have to worry about the gentleman's agreement. ESPN is going to be incentivized to cover the SEC no matter what because they spend all this money on the SEC. It's not like the NBA asked ESPN to overcover them, as we know they do. ESPN's like, we spend a lot of money on the rights to NBA games. We need to cover them to make sure people are watching. Okay, but that's worth something, right? I mean, what is that? That that's that's kind of innate. Yeah, I I can tell you, I can sell you something, I can sell you a car for a thousand dollars. But if I tell you, but you, if you know me, okay, first first boat I ever bought was from Mike Stoll, who played offensive lineman for Tennessee. There was a comfort there in knowing that if I had a little issue with the boat, I could call him and he would say, oh, here's what you do. The starter does this. You just have to replace that. So there is something there that's that's a partnership that is more than just the cash exchange, right? Yes, I agree. But they're but okay, still so got two billion more. You run a publicly, I mean, you, you don't, you, you, you're an investor. You so pretend you run a publicly traded company, okay? Yes, you need your value and your brand to be good. You also need people to think that you're more valuable than you are, don't you? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. That's the problem with the SEC. The SEC is, what Greg Sinke is doing is making the brand second to none. Best brand in America, by far. One, you don't have to work that hard. It already is the best brand in America. And Greg Sinke is making that brand superb and amazing. But the thing is, if you're going to make the brand superb and amazing, you should have some negotiators to negotiate a superb and amazing deal. This, the, you need people to perceive you as more valuable than the Big Ten. And right now, networks still don't perceive the SEC as more valuable than the Big Ten. That's stupid. They are more valuable than the Big Ten. There are 10 SEC teams, I, probably in the top 20, that bring in revenue, and maybe four in the Big Ten, maybe five. And the Big Ten is getting deals worth twice as much. Yes, misnegotiated, but here's what they did. The Big Ten was like, hey, let's get the money first, and then we'll do some horse trading to make sure it works out. And they'll probably be okay with that. Whereas the SEC is going, let's make our brand on rock solid foundation as great as possible and then see what money comes with that. I'm like, okay, no, make your brand rock solid, but you need to have negotiators to make sure you get more than properly paid for that brand. Okay, so let's say it's a nine game schedule. Who wins, who loses? I actually think Tennessee is going to be one of the bigger winners because of their ties to Kentucky and Vanderbilt. Uh, you're not going to leave Vanderbilt out. So let's say it's a nine game schedule. That's a permanent opponent. Kentucky might be that Alabama might be that you would think that either way, it's not going to be Vanderbilt, Alabama and Georgia. Right. So Tennessee probably loses Georgia, if they go to a nine game and they don't continue with the divisions, that's good for Tennessee. Who's it bad for? I think it's bad for Alabama. I think Alabama, if their three permanent opponents are LSU, Auburn, and who else has been kicked around that Nick Saban got wrong? It was LSU, Auburn, and Tennessee. Tennessee, of course. And that to me is pretty daunting. You have, and and I'm not saying just because of recency bias. I think Auburn's always going to play you tough. I think LSU, even with a guy like, what's up, look, even like with a guy like Ed Orgeron, I think that you you can still play for championships and be a tough out. Now you do have a Josh Heupel at a, a Tennessee. I think Alabama is probably the loser in the nine game schedule out of all the schools that I could point out. 
Yeah, that's why they're heading to Destin this week with Nick Saban favoring an eight-game schedule when Nick Saban has ranted about wanting a nine-game schedule for the past 10 years. But knowing what – I don't blame him for that either. So, yeah, Alabama's a big loser. I'll tell you what, Tennessee's a winner either way. They're a winner on the 3-6. They're also a winner on the 1-7. Because if it's the 1-7, Tennessee's permanent opponent is Vanderbilt every year. So the what, what is the 1-7? If the conference does eight games – Okay, you'll have eight one games. permanent opponent. Okay. You'll have one permanent opponent and seven rotating. Tennessee's one permanent opponent is going to be Vanderbilt. Um, yeah, I mean they they do win either way, and, and and you could certainly. I just don't want to see schools be able to be at Tennessee or anybody else be able to play for Patsies. I don't want to see four Austin Peas because I think if you go with the eight game schedule there's no reason not to do that from a pragmatic standpoint get in the playoff see what happens and that's exactly what you're going to see well yeah not just get in the playoff get to a bowl game because again the payouts the revenue from bowl games and this is what the sec is looking at this weekend this is why i keep saying the deal with espn was relevant was there's an incentive now to make sure you maximize there you know there's there's payouts for conferences that put teams in the playoff play conferences that put teams in bowl games by the way, I don't know if you guys know this, but this is a really big issue that they haven't figured out with the 12-team college football playoff yet. There's payouts per to the conference per team that gets in the bowl games. What happens, Dave, when the SEC puts four teams in the playoff, the Pac-12 puts one team in? Like, the SEC is getting four times the revenue for the playoff. That's going to be an issue that a lot – that's going to be a sticking point for a lot of other schools, and the SEC is going to sit riding high on that. And right. that's another incentive for them to stick with eight games. True. Okay, so before I ask you what ends up happening, I'll remind uh, remind everybody it's brought to you by crafttreats.com. Crafttreats.com, <clears throat> absolutely phenomenal for your pet. They can help with the arthritis issues. They can help with the social anxiety. They can also help with, how about digestive issues? Because they've got the CBD derivative in there, the chill pills. Go to crafttreats.com, use the promo code off the hook, the promo code off the hook, get 20% off. That's right, 20% off. And all you got to do is go to crafttreats.com. They have non-CBD treats as well, but use the promo code off the hook to get 20% off homemade, holistic, fantastic pet treats. So do they end up with eight or nine? Who are the permanent opponents and how strongly do you feel? I think Greg Sankey uh, on Memorial Day evening passed along the message that he really, really wants nine. It's not his decision. It is the ultimate uh, decision of the schools. However, I think it's going to be nine, and I think that's where you're going to see it sit. And some people are going to get the short end of the stick. Some people are not. But I believe that it's going to be uh, the nine, and I think Tennessee's three will be pretty simple. It'll be Alabama, it'll be Kentucky, and it'll be Vanderbilt. I think that Alabama is the is the loser because of uh, permanent opponents. And somebody asked, oh, they're, they're already playing LSU and Auburn and uh, Tennessee. Well, they, they are, but they would continue to play those teams even if they went away from division play. So that's where it gets challenging. I think Alabama is the, the significant loser in this in this regard. That's a pretty pretty tough trio to play each and every year. You go into the year saying if you go two and one of those three teams, you've you've had a good season. And that's not what Alabama is used to. So I'm going to break from you a little bit. I don't think Tennessee's are very obvious. I think it's actually going to be Vanderbilt, Alabama, and South Carolina because they have to find three teams to play South Carolina. And so I think that's going to be Tennessee's third team. They're going to lose their rivalry with Kentucky. 
I'm with you. Alabama's the loser. I'm also with you. They go to nine games. And the reason I think they go to nine games is there has to be some level of confidence in their commissioner projected. And I look, Dave, the way you and I feel about Greg Sankey, we're kind of a little bit on, I don't say, I don't say I have no confidence in Greg Sankey. I just, I know that you're very bullish on you. You think he's five steps ahead of all of us and maybe he is, but I'll tell you this much for his sake, the SEC better do nine games because if they go eight games, that's a that is a first sign of maybe a lack of confidence in Greg Sankey as the commissioner, given how much he's pushed for nine games and how hard he's pushed for it. And I don't think he I don't think he just dropped the whole we need to do nine games last night for no reason. I think that is a purposeful, meticulous, calculated way to pressure the schools to try to make sure they do nine games. No, no question in my mind. All right. A new feature that we've got and we want to get your input from the message board. It is time for Smoky Hot Takes as we look back on Tennessee football history. And we'll probably do some other schools as well, but they wouldn't fit well under Smoky Hot Takes. So Smoky Hot Takes today as we get off and rolling is brought to you again by our friends at uh, Craft Treats. Go to CraftTreats.com. Use the promo code off the hook sports and promo code off the hook gets you 20% off. All right. So Tennessee's biggest almost comeback. Because the Celtics almost came back from three down to win a series. They did not. Thank you for pointing that out, Caleb. I really appreciate that. It's very nice of you. All right. So biggest almost comebacks are what? It's quite a few, and I want to know where you're going to go on this. But two I don't that know really where I'm going to go on this. Two that really stand out to me are 2016 Texas A&M. Tennessee, if you guys remember, started off 5-0, and had the Dobbs Nail Boot Hail Mary game. They had come back from four double-digit deficits, two three-score deficits against Appalachian State, Virginia Tech, Georgia, and Florida to get to 5-0. and They're behind by two touchdowns to Texas A&M. They score, cut it to one, and then Texas A&M has a first down. They can run out the clock, but their running back keeps running, and he fumbles the ball out of the back of the end zone for a touchback. Tennessee goes down to score, tie it up, and loses in overtime. Should have gone for two at the end of regulation, but Butch Jones was never smart enough to think that far ahead. So they that that's an almost comeback. The other one is 2003 Auburn, where Ooh, Tennessee yeah. couldn't stop the run and couldn't run the ball and fell behind 28-7. And Casey Clawson honestly almost single-handedly led them back to win that game, but through an interception late. Okay, I'm going to go way back. All right? All right. This is not a huge monstrous comeback, but I'm pretty sure they were down. How about James Banks in that Georgia game? Yes. He played quarterback, and that was the game that cost them Chris Lake. You and I talked about it recently. They weren't down by a tremendous amount, but I just thought that they were not even in the same class as Georgia, given a quarterback issue because Casey Clawson was hurt, and James Banks, to me, kept them in that. They had the ball down uh, about four points, I believe, on um, in Georgia territory, and they ended up stalling there. So, me to me, they felt like they were down, and maybe you can pull up the box score as far as how far no, they, they were I remember, down. I remember that specifically. You're right. They were down 18 to nothing in the fourth. Okay, so they're, they're down 18 to nothing, and they almost – pulled that game out it would have been one of the most painful georgia losses in 
the last 25 years during my career, basically. It would have been one of the most unexpected wins in Tennessee football history when you have to go with James Banks running the ball around like a crazy person and really not completing much except for design throws and flat passes. and They just didn't throw down the field a lot. It was an extended running game when they did throw the ball. So me, that would be the one that they almost pulled off. But it's weird. It was their costliest almost comeback because they almost came back because Banks played so well and C.J. Leak went out there first that it cost them Chris Leak and probably threw off their recruiting for the next three or four years because that was the plan. Yeah, so, it was a domino A huge domino effect, Caleb. Led to, led to the 05 disaster and at uh, quarterback. No, you're right. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Um. 2000, yeah, that, so the one would I brought up been, over Here's the other funny part about that. Would they have been better off just to play, as far as the program, just to play C.J. Leak, lose by 20 points, and get Chris Leak as your next quarterback? Oh, I think so. I think so. I mean, particularly when you lost out, unless you were trying to make James Banks happy for his future, and you lost out on James Banks anyway because he would, wouldn't put the work in. So, I think you knew you were going to lose out on James Banks eventually. I think that was the that was the one chance for him to have a major impact on Tennessee's football program. Yeah, yes, that that's probably true. Oh, it's funny. Oh, three Auburn. The one I brought up was the year after. Uh, another one. So a couple that stick out to me, Dave. Uh, before my time, but you may remember this. It's not a big comeback in terms of numbers, but 1990 Notre Dame, the year before the miracle at South Bend, where they I was I was at that game. They were remember Carl Pickens recovers the onside kick. They're driving, yes. and Andy Kelly just throws a late interception. Uh, and yeah, Andy should have put some more touch under that ball. Um, and he completed one where he, he he threw a low profile on that very same route, threw a low profile pass early in the first half, and he thought he could repeat it. And if I remember correctly, the Notre Dame safety read that correctly. I was at that game strictly as a fan. My stepdad took me. And I I don't think I'll ever be at a football game, a college football game, where there was more talent on the field. Now, that led to the miracle at South Bend the next year. But if you go back and look at the talent that was on that field, I still remember just a nice little toss sweep to this guy named Rahib Ismail. And he went by the rocket for a reason. And I remember being at the in an end zone with like the all 22 cam that coaches look at. And I remember seeing him catch the pitch, Caleb, and me thinking within two strides, I don't think they're going to get him to the corner. And they didn't. And he was, boom, fastest man I think I've ever seen on a football field other than Jamal Lewis running the 40-yard time at his pro day. And he was gone. But if you go back and look, there were probably on that field that day, 25 guys that made an all pro team. Oh, that done, that's funny you say that because I will never forget somebody near. I, I watched an old documentary about the night about the 90s and the falls in the 90s and someone narrated that game and they're like. It was a there, there were it, there were so many scouts at that game that it was probably one of the best games ever for scalpers because. It was a. Uh, it was probably one of the hardest tickets to come by relative to that time in college football history ever, because so many NFL scouts paid money to get into that game. 
And so, yeah, I mean, that would have been an incredible comeback. They did it the next year. And that was uh, very, that was very impressive. What was that? I said more legendary 31 to seven block. Yeah, they do come back. So I'm reading Gene Wojciechowski and this appeared in the LA times. So I, if, if you look at some of the, the players, uh, senior step forward beating Tennessee Smith's interception near goal line. So the interception was from Rod Smith. I don't remember anything about Rod Smith, but I will throw you a couple of names out there. Chris Zorich, a senior and a captain. Uh, he played against Tennessee. This was such a big deal. He was actually uh, injured before. You had Stonebreaker, who was a guy that played a lot. Uh, Zorich obviously did. Michael Stonebreaker was the linebacker. So you have Rocket. Um, I mean, and Tennessee had Carl Pickens. Uh, Tennessee had Alvin Harper. Tennessee had, I mean, there was the, the amount of talent on that field was absolutely insane. Caleb. Yeah. And oh, was yeah a freshman. Didn't you have Jerome Bettis? Yeah. A freshman bus was on that team. A freshman, the bus, uh, Ricky waters was on that team. Did you name Ricky waters? Ricky waters. I didn't name him. Keep going. Yeah, but you're right. And then on Tennessee side, you're right. Alvin Harper, Carl Pickens, Anton Davis, Chuck Smith. Um, you know, just, a, a who Dale Carter, Del Carter. Um, yeah, this was a who's who of talent. This is the only thing that would have competed with this was had Tennessee actually gotten over the hump and gotten and beaten LSU in one and played Miami for the national title that year. That's the only game that would have competed with this one for like raw NFL talent on the field in one game. Yep, and, I can go with that. All right, so Mr. Jones says battle for Bristol was a comeback win versus Virginia Tech. One, we're not looking at comeback wins, and that wasn't a comeback. Tennessee was down 14 to nothing in the first quarter, and then they blew them out the rest of the game. That's not really a comeback. No, and... it's not. But I see where he's going there. Um, so what about most legendary almost comebacks in school history? I think your last game as a fan, you mentioned this to me before, but does this count, or does this is was this just the other team calling off the dogs? 96 Florida. Oh, my last one was actually 98 Orange Bowl with Peyton's last game. But okay, 96 Florida, man, you just never felt like that game that they were actually going to come back. Did we? Well, Did anybody? Tennessee fell behind 35 to nothing and lost 35 to 29. They scored a touchdown with 10 seconds left and almost recovered the onside kick for a shot at a Hail Mary. So I don't know if you really count that as an almost comeback or if you think. I remember Bob Stoops came out. Because Spurrier had gotten a lot of heat for running up the score around that time. So I think just to stick it to the media, he decided to sit on the lead against Tennessee. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I can't go one that felt like more of a comeback. Sometimes comebacks don't feel like a comeback. Because you you mentioned the LSU one. It felt like tennis in 2001. It felt like Tennessee should have led the whole dad blame ball game anyway, because they come out at halftime and they say, Rohan Davey and LeBrandon Tofield for LSU are unavailable for the second half. And that's when I immediately start. And Tennessee's up 14-0. So I, LSU obviously led because they won, but it didn't wouldn't have felt like a comeback to me. No, I agree. Yeah, no, the LSU comeback, funny enough, an almost comeback was the year before against LSU. I just thought of this at LSU. When A.J. Suggs brought Tennessee back, remember that one? Yes. And then they lost in overtime. 
And they lost, and that was Saban's team that lost to Law Monroe. Louisiana UAB. Monroe. UAB. Or UAB, yeah. Yeah. Because you know what they did to motivate the players? Because they're, they're – listen, Alabama football, you got a bunch of homers. Kentucky basketball, you got a bunch of homers in your media. Okay, those are the two. But then there are some that are kind of homers a little bit. And the Baton Rouge uh, Daily Advocate running – the picture of UAB the week before waving their flag on LSU's campus when they upset the Tigers the day of the Tennessee game. Sorry, that was Homer Media. Every LSU football player saw that on Saturday morning, that they're still running the old UAB pictures. They were ultra-motivated. I saw that in my hotel room. I was like, uh-oh. So they're media was trying to motivate LSU, is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. Well, well, I mean, that was this game that, like, that it was a it was, was a paper troll, a paper troll. We didn't have that back then. That was a paper troll. That was Nick Saban's emergence at LSU. A lot of people questioned the Nick Saban hire, particularly after that UAB loss. The win over Tennessee changed everything, and then the win over Tennessee the next year really changed everything. But oh, and then I saw on the message boards another one you were at, Dave. An almost comeback, and would have been the most unlikely, unlikely one. Mount Cody, two thousand nine, Alabama. I thought about including that one as well, but didn't that? It felt like a nip and tuck game. Well, remember Alabama had the ball up twelve to three with two minutes left, and we thought they were going to run out the clock. It's and then Mark Ingram sports. had his, yeah, Mark Ingram had his only fumble of the whole like year, and then Tennessee scores a touchdown, gets the onside kick and gets into field goal range. Just a bunch of things had to happen that you didn't think would happen for Tennessee to have the chance to win the game. And you and I disagree on this, but I still think Kiffin set on the clock and tried to take the long field goal because he didn't want to shoulder any blame if he called the wrong play trying to get closer. Well, we don't disagree on the first part. He sat on it too long. (laughs) Whatever the motivation, good Lord, we could be his clinical psychologist and neither of us would know the answer to that. (laughs) 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 I hope that person makes good money. Um, yes, but I saw him do were... that. A... Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was, I just, I saw him do that a couple of times. Like at Florida that year, I saw him play clock management just so he wouldn't lose by a lot. So he could sell something. To if they score. were down two scores, then I will say, yes, that that would be number one, because even if you beat Notre Dame in 1990, they were never down two scores to LSU and at, in either of the games we discussed, were they? No, they were down way big to LSU. 2000, they were down 31 to 15, and they got two touchdowns and two two point conversions in the fourth quarter with AJ Suggs at quarterback. But I'll take Alabama at Tuscaloosa that particular year as my number one. I forgot they were down two scores. So, yeah, they were down two scores. Uh, Smoky Hot takes. There you go. Tennessee's biggest almost comeback is do we agree or. Are you agreeing on this, Caleb? Alabama 2009. Are we going to go with that one? I can't tell if your shirt's Miami Vice or more likely um, uh, the, the hip LA marijuana dispensary places. <laughs> I'm going to still the Woody, go you're with the Woody Harrelson of the SEC. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to still go with 03 Auburn because that cost Tennessee the SEC East where they were down 28 to seven. They scored two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. Clausen converts a fourth and 13, then draws a late hit and he's in the red zone. And you're so sure he's going to score a touchdown to win the game. 
and he throws an interception, his only bat throw of the game. Smoky Hot Takes, there it is. Be sure and uh, comment below the biggest almost comeback in Tennessee football history. We'll have more from SEC Media Days throughout the week. Looking forward to that. He's Caleb Calhoun. I'm Dave Hooker. This has been a presentation of Off the Hook Sports. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.